Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Welcome back to Misconduct. I'm your host, Colleen. I am excited to announce that Misconduct is going to be attending the first annual True Crime Podcast Festival on July 13th, 2019 in Chicago. The festival is specifically designed around your desire to mingle, interact, and have casual conversations with podcasters that you listen to regularly. There will also be panel discussions and live episode recordings. So many great podcasters are registered to attend, so you're really not going to want to miss this. Go to the website tcpf2019.com to find information on tickets and the hotel. Prices do go up the closer we get to the event, so you're not going to want to wait. When you buy your ticket, make sure you mention misconduct on the ticket registration survey, and I'll see you at the True Crime Podcast Festival. And with that, let's get into the episode. This episode covers the murder of 16-year-old Tina at the hands of her own parents. In the aftermath of her death, it was made public that her family home was bugged by the FBI. These tapes recorded their day-to-day life and revealed an especially horrific case of child abuse that ended in tragedy. This story begins in St. Louis, Missouri in 1989. Palestina Issa, called Tina for short, was 16 years old and the youngest child of Zane and Maria Issa. The family lived in a modest apartment in St. Louis and owned a small corner store called the Alliance Market. Zane Issa had immigrated to the United States by way of Palestine, but also lived for a time in Brazil. That was where he met his wife Maria and they married in the early 60s and had multiple children together. Because of her parents' diverse backgrounds, Tina was exposed to different cultures and religions. When she moved to the U.S., English became the fourth language that she was fluent in, along with Arabic from her father, Portuguese from her mother, and she also spoke Spanish. Although her mother was Catholic, Tina and her siblings were raised Muslim like their father. Zane was a very strict father, and he had arranged marriages for his older daughters and planned to do the same with Tina. Although arranged marriages happen in many cultures and countries around the world, it is a less common practice in the United States. As parents, Zane and Maria believed that their wishes were to be unconditionally respected by their children. 
They also believed that their children were required to defer to them and do what they say until they got married and left their family home. In 1989, Tina was a senior at Roosevelt High School in St. Louis, and her 17th birthday was on December 3rd of that year, but she wouldn't live to see it. Tina was outgoing and popular. Her principal would later tell reporters that she was well-liked by the faculty and other students. Her friends called her caring and pleasant and said she always had a smile for everyone. She was an athlete as well and played on the tennis and soccer team. In fact, while researching this case, I found old articles predating her death from St. Louis that mentioned her performance on the school's soccer team. Not only was Tina a popular athlete, she was also an excellent student. She received straight A's and took courses in advanced mathematics, such as trigonometry and analytical geometry. Her high school counselor would later tell investigators that Tina had dreams of attending St. Louis University to study engineering. Tina also had a boyfriend, Cliff, who she met while working at her parents' store. Cliff was a regular at Alliance Market when he lived in the area, but he and Tina stayed in touch after he moved to a different neighborhood. Zane and Maria did not approve of their relationship. They frequently brought up Cliff's race and told Tina and other family members that they did not approve of the relationship because Cliff was black. Zane and Maria also had plans to arrange a marriage between Tina and a family member of one of Tina's brothers-in-law. Tina had no interest in her parents' marriage plans for her. According to Cliff, Tina was punished whenever it was discovered that she had been keeping in contact with him. It escalated so much that at some point, Tina told Cliff it was better if he didn't come to the store anymore. Tina seemed to be the child that most parents want. In fact, another interview from her principal called her a super kid and a parent's dream. But to Zane and Maria, Tina was horrendously disrespectful and her independence was considered to be an embarrassment. The Issa family had immigrated to the United States just five years before the murder when Tina was 11 years old. She had spent her formative years as an American child, now a teenager, and she wanted to do the things that her peers were doing, even if that went against the wishes of her parents. Zane and Maria had plans for Tina's life and found her desire to do what she wanted to be disrespectful. They also began to grow concerned that her social circle was to blame for what they called her bad behavior. Teenage years can be some of the most challenging times in a parent-child relationship, and this was true in the Isis relationship with Tina, but their parent-child dynamic was extreme and eventually turned abusive. The Isis decided that they needed to rein in their daughter, and to do so, they started to restrict her. At first, it was an early curfew, which turned into her coming home straight after school. When that didn't deter her, Tina's parents started restricting her from extracurricular activities like the junior class field trip to Washington, D.C., and college prep programs she qualified for due to her good grades. Tina's sisters seemed to side with their parents. They agreed that Tina was acting out and their parents needed to do more to rein her in. When Tina went to her junior prom, she was allegedly escorted out by her sisters. They were very critical of Tina, saying that she was on a bad path and in danger of becoming an embarrassing burden on her family. 
Maria went to Roosevelt High School in October of 1989 and demanded to speak with Tina's guidance counselor. Maria informed the counselor that she wanted to withdraw Tina from Roosevelt High School because Tina was refusing to obey their family rules. The guidance counselor managed to calm Maria down enough to get her to agree to a meeting that following Monday. The counselor hoped that Maria would be more calm and a rational discussion could be had at that time. The counselor also pointed out that taking Tina out of school could negatively impact her socially and academically because from an outsider's perspective, Tina seemed extremely well-adjusted. Unfortunately, the meeting that Monday was worse than the first. Maria came to the school and was described by the guidance counselor as hostile and unreasonable. Maria complained to her that neither she nor Zane wanted Tina to date, quote, a black boy, but Tina continued to see Cliff. Then Maria referred to Tina as a tramp and a whore who was willfully going against her family. Overall, the meeting was unproductive, but Maria never followed through with withdrawing Tina from Roosevelt High School. And within three weeks of this meeting, Tina would be dead. The language Maria used against her daughter in the school meeting was very harsh and inappropriate, but it was not uncommon in their household. By late 1989, basically all of Tina's immediate family had decided that her lifestyle made her an embarrassment. It didn't seem to matter that she was doing well in school, they were upset that she was making choices for herself that they did not agree with or allow, and that was considered unacceptable. In addition to verbal abuse, there is evidence to suggest that Tina was subjected to physical abuse going back years. In the aftermath of her death, Tina's friends told police that she had discussed the beatings that she endured at home with them and that she had been seen at school with bruises. They said that Tina told them she was scared of her parents and scared of how far the abuse would go. Cliff also said that the Isis abused Tina. He said that they discussed Tina running away from home, and in October of 1989, she nearly did. Tina backed out at the last second, but resolved to leave her parents' home as soon as she turned 17 on December 3rd. She figured that she had made it this long living with them, and she could probably make it another few weeks. Neighbors also reported what they knew of the abuse to police. Joyce Martin lived in the same apartment complex at the time and knew Tina. She said that she always saw Tina doing chores for the family and was often screamed at by her parents. Other neighbors were more friendly with Tina. One said that Tina confided in him about the physical abuse that she was subjected to by her father, and she showed him bruises. Tina also told him that her parents were extremely upset that her boyfriend was black. This neighbor also said that Tina had mentioned the arranged marriage her parents had set up, but that Tina did not want to go through with it. Tina also said that Zane called her resistance to the marriage disgraceful. Another neighbor said that he witnessed Zane beating Tina inside the Alliance Market and that the police were called. He also described several instances where he remembered seeing bruises on Tina. Roosevelt High School was also aware that something was going on in the Isa household. After Tina's murder, it came out that the school had made a call to the state to report suspected child abuse. Due to confidentiality laws, it is unknown when the call was placed, who placed it, and why it was placed. 
Even if the suspected abused person had died, because Tina was a minor, those details remained private. Tina often worked at Alliance Market, her parents' store. However, she was not a paid employee. In order to start making money for herself, Tina applied and got a job at a local Wendy's fast food restaurant in late October of 1989. November 5th, 1989 was her first day of work and she was supposed to report to her first shift after school. Knowing that she would be out past her curfew, Tina left a note for her parents taped to their television in the living room in the morning before she left for school. It informed Zane and Maria that she had gotten a job and that she would be home around 11.30 that night. Tina knew getting a job would be seen as another sign of disrespect to her parents and she expected them to react poorly. Any sign of independence was always met with swift backlash from her parents. Perhaps that's why she chose to leave a note rather than tell them in person. The conversation might be easier to tolerate after her shift rather than before school. Cliff walked Tina home from her first shift, and I imagine they discussed the impending argument that Tina would have with her parents. As they approached Tina's apartment complex, she told Cliff to wait for her. Cliff suspected that Tina expected her parents to be so angry with her that they were going to kick her out of the house as soon as she got home. Cliff waited outside of the complex for Tina to return, and as he watched her walk away towards the apartment, He didn't know that this would be the last time that he saw her alive. Tina was right. Her parents were livid when she got home. Both Zane and Maria were up and waiting for Tina in the living room. She braced herself for the same argument she had been having with her parents for months. What we know about the following events is indisputable, which is rare in most murder cases. Many times we only have the side of the person stood accused of the murder, and the victim is unable to speak for themselves. This case is different due to a unique factor. The following events were caught on audio recording. That's because at some point prior to this day, Zane became the subject of an FBI terrorism investigation, and they had bugged the ISA apartment unbeknownst to the family. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Tina was greeted with, where have you been, bitch, from her mother, speaking Portuguese. Tina told both her parents that she had been at work and that she had been hired at the Wendy's in the local neighborhood. Zane argued with Tina about her relationship and that despite his best efforts, Tina continued to see Cliff. 
Maria took issue with Tina's decision to work, saying this life of yours is unacceptable. Zane then said, listen to what I say to you. Until you reach 17, I am prepared to provide for you. Why you don't do anything but eat, drink, and sleep, I swear the money is not enough for you, and you've stolen from me, so why do you play this game now? Maria followed up with, do you want to sleep here? If you want to sleep here, then you don't need any money. Do you want to drink water from here? If you want to drink water from here, then you don't need any money. Tina then told her parents to get it over with and just kick her out of the house. Zane wanted to know where she was planning on going, and Tina countered with, does it even matter? Maria demanded that Tina give them her house key, and Tina asked again if they were going to kick her out. That's when Zane said, here, listen, my dear daughter, do you know what this is? This is the last day. Tonight, you're going to die. Do you know that you're going to die tonight? And Tina replied that she was confused, but then Maria interrupted the conversation by demanding to go through Tina's book bag. As Maria took apart Tina's belongings, they are recorded arguing about the different things inside her bag. It was, whose shoes are these? To which Tina would reply, mine. Or, whose books are these? These are my school books. I belong to the school. While this conversation was happening, Tina suddenly begins screaming. Zane tells Tina to stay still, and Tina screams for Maria to help her. Maria asks Tina if she's prepared to listen, and Tina, still screaming, says that she will listen to them. Then more screaming is heard before Maria tells her to shut up. Tina's voice is heard screaming no, and she's coughing through tears. As Tina's voice and cries begin to quiet, Zane is heard saying, Die, die quickly, die quickly and quiet, little one. Die, my daughter, die. Tina's scream stops, her coughing stops, and her cries stop. When all is quiet in the apartment, Maria is heard calling 911. While they were waiting for emergency services to respond to the apartment, both Zane and Maria started calling relatives, informing them that Tina had attacked Zane with multiple knives and he had no choice but to kill Tina in self-defense. According to the ISAs, Tina had come home demanding that Zane give her $5,000. When Zane refused, they claimed that Tina attacked him. When paramedics arrived at the apartment, they were told the same story. They found Tina's body on the floor of the living room with multiple apparent stab wounds. Two knives were found next to her head. When the police arrived, they were told the same story but with more detail. They claimed that Tina came home and demanded the $5,000, and when she was told no that they didn't have that much money, they say that Tina attacked Zane with a knife. They claimed that he managed to grab her wrist and take the knife from her, and then he stabbed her twice in self-defense. Then they said that Tina grabbed another knife and came at Zane again, and once again Zane managed to take the second knife off of Tina and stabbed her two or three more times. It was at this point that Tina dropped to the floor, and they were able to call 911. The police were immediately skeptical for a few reasons. First off, neither Zane nor Maria seemed particularly upset that Tina was dead, even though Zane had been the one to kill her. Even if it was self-defense, the officers were struck by the ISA's lack of emotion. Second, their story seemed flimsy. How did one teenage girl attack her father, get stabbed multiple times, and then try to attack him again? 
Especially over a demand for an unreasonably large amount of money that Tina would know that her parents would not likely have. At the end of the preliminary investigation at the crime scene, Zane Isa was arrested. Although it was clear the police had set their investigative sights on Zane, he was released just hours after being arrested. Investigators decided to wait on autopsy results to compare evidence against Zane and Maria's self-defense story. On November 6th, word had spread through Roosevelt High School that Tina had been killed. Tina's friends began coming forward to the school and then the police with stories about Tina and her family. Friends detailed Tina's accounts of the verbal abuse from her family and the physical abuse from her father. Tina's parents frequently expressed their anger with Tina's independence, and Tina's sisters often took their parents' side. Many friends told police that Tina was afraid of her parents, and the school also told police about the abuse complaint that had been previously made to the state. It was also revealed that Tina was desperate to get away from her family. In the state of Missouri, you're legally considered an adult when you're 17, so Tina was just under a month away from freedom. She had run away once before and was gone for three days before she came back. Due to her age, she was unlikely to be able to strike out on her own. Seeing as she was about to turn the legal age, Tina probably figured that she could just stick it out a couple more weeks. According to her friends and her boyfriend Cliff, Tina fully intended to leave home the day she turned 17. I think that Tina defying her parents and getting a job support that. If Tina intended on supporting herself, the first thing that she would need would be a paying job. The revelation of abuse refocused law enforcement's investigation back onto Zane. The next morning, November 7th, charges were filed against Zane for first-degree murder. A warrant for Zane's arrest was issued, and police went to work to track him down. Zane was arrested while leaving a friend's liquor store in his neighborhood that same day. He was held on $1 million bail. With his connections in various other countries, authorities were concerned that Zane was a flight risk. Three weeks later, on November 30th, police arrived at Alliance Market around 5 in the afternoon. They walked into the store and arrested Maria Isa, who was working behind the counter. Police said in a statement that they always felt that Maria was involved in a participant in her daughter's murder but they didn't go into detail about her level of involvement. Tina's autopsy revealed why it was believed that Maria assisted Zane in the murder. The report showed that Tina suffered from six stab wounds, two of which were fatal. So far, the Isis story seemed reasonable. He had indicated that he stabbed Tina five times, and to be slightly mistaken on the exact number of wounds is not so far-fetched but it would turn out that the number of stab wounds was the only part of their story that made any sense at all. The autopsy showed that Tina had hairs in her hands, and these hairs ended up being arm hairs that matched to Maria. It seemed that Tina had pulled the hairs out of her mother's arm as her mother held her down. Tina also had defensive wounds on her hands and scratches on her face and neck. The stab wounds were described as being a cluster, This meant that all of the stab wounds were inflicted while Tina was not moving. This further supported the theory that Tina was being restrained. All of the wounds were to the left side of Tina's chest. The stab wounds pierced her breastbone, 
meaning that they came from a sharp knife and used significant force. The two fatal wounds pierced Tina's heart and her left lung. Law enforcement spent the rest of 1989 conducting their investigation while the Isis were in jail. Less than a month after her death, on December 3rd, Tina's 17th birthday came and went. Her friends and teachers grieved for the young girl whose life was cut short before her full potential was realized. Tina Isa was an exceptional student, a talented athlete, and a sweet, thoughtful person. She was also someone who experienced unimaginable hardships at the hands of the people that we expect to protect us. But despite this, she excelled and continued to look forward to what was to come. I think her parents knew Tina was on the brink of adulthood, and soon they would no longer have control over her life. Rather than let Tina spread her wings, they cut her life short in a final selfish act of violence against her. Early 1990 brought another bombshell revelation. Unbeknownst to the ISAs and local law enforcement, Zane had been the target of an ongoing FBI investigation. It was reported that Zane was believed to have connections to a splinter group of the Palestine Liberation Organization called the Abu Nadal Organization, or the ANO. The ANO formed as a result of a split that occurred in the mid-1970s when some members felt that the Palestine Liberation Organization's ideology was shifting towards a compromise with Israel, which they objected to. Upwards of 90 attacks in 20 countries have been attributed to the ANO, however the exact count is not known. Multiple attacks targeted synagogues and airliners. The Palestine Liberation Organization and its various splinter groups such as the ANO are well-known organizations, but the FBI did not elaborate on why Zane's potential connection was of interest to them. The FBI did say that it was a matter of national security because at the time of the investigation and today, the United States government designates the ANO as a terrorist organization. An element of the FBI investigation into Zane and the ANO included bugging the ISA apartment and recording them 24-7. These tapes were not actively being listened in on, rather an agent would periodically check the recordings from time to time. These tapes ended up recording seven minutes of audio that backed up law enforcement's theory that both Zane and Maria killed Tina together, and this is how we know exactly what was said to Tina in her final moments. With this revelation, Bond was revoked for both Maria and Zane. Then-Assistant District Attorney D. Joyce Hayes was in charge of prosecuting the case. In an interview in an article at the time, ADA Joyce Hayes said that the tapes were a critical element of their case, but there was an issue of their admissibility in court. She also said that she was not informed as to why the ISA apartment was bugged by the FBI. The ISA apartment had also been taped for some time, so in addition to the murder, the tapes also recorded other conversations that painted a dark picture of Tina's day-to-day life. Plenty of recordings of arguments between Tina and her parents were caught on tape. Also recorded were conversations between Maria and Zane and their other daughters, and they spent a lot of time discussing Tina. The recordings were in Arabic and Portuguese, depending on who was in the conversation. When discussing Tina's rebellious behavior with his daughters, it was agreed that something needed to be done to control her. 
When their attempts were unsuccessful, their conversations took a scary tone. Once, when discussing Tina's relationship with her boyfriend Cliff, one sister was recorded telling her father, May God pain her, may God make her sleep and not get up. She's a whore who will never enter my house. Saint also vented his frustrations to extended family members and friends. Several conversations were recorded where Zane lamented being at the end of his rope with Tina. Another time, a different sister said that if her father ended up killing Tina, it would be best for the family for them to defend him and his actions. In a morbid moment of foreboding, Zane himself was on the tapes saying of Tina, When the glass is broken, it cannot be repaired. Another time, one of the sisters had called Zane to discuss Tina and how the family needed to continue to be strict with her. Zane said, if God grants my wish, I'll put her in the grave. When asked by his daughter what he would do if he were questioned by the police about Tina's death, Zane said he would tell them that he had killed her in self-defense. The ICE's trial began in the middle of October 1991. The prosecution had announced that they were seeking the death penalty against both Zane and Maria. The ICE's lawyers took a fairly straightforward approach in their defense. Zane's lawyer claimed that he was just trying to raise his daughter in what he thought was the best way. He was a conservative person and he had expectations that his children would live the same way. Zane's lawyers also said that the more Zane tried to force Tina to conform, the more she resisted and grew to hate him. They also claimed that she threatened her father physically on multiple occasions. Maria's lawyers took a slightly different approach, saying that she was helpless in the household where Zane was always in charge. They said that she often sided with Tina in arguments. We know from the tapes that at least on the night of the murder, that is not true. But during the pretrial hearings, the tape's admissibility was called into question. It was ruled that the tapes could be used against Zane because he was the subject of an FBI investigation. The tapes, however, were not allowed to be used as evidence against Maria. The prosecution's argument was that Zane and Maria were upset with Tina because she had embraced American culture and the plans that she had for herself did not align with what they wanted her to do with her life. Tina refused to break up with her boyfriend and wanted to go to college, but her parents wanted to arrange a marriage for her. And when Tina made it clear that she was not going to go along with that plan, her parents grew more upset. The prosecution and subsequently the media have characterized this killing as an honor killing. What actually constitutes an honor killing varies a bit. Oftentimes in the media, the term honor killing is used to describe crimes where the perpetrator and victims are Muslim or of Middle Eastern descent, and that is partially true in this case. However, it is a common misconception that honor killings only happen in these communities and these families. Honor killings actually happen across a variety of communities and backgrounds. So honor killing is a term that's often used, but what does it actually entail? Social anthropologist Uni Weekend calls honor killings, quote, a murder carried out as a commission from the extended family to restore honor after the family has been dishonored. As a rule, the basic cause is a rumor, with or without proof, that any female family member has behaved in an immoral way. In Tina's case, her parents' main grievance was how she behaved autonomously. 
While many people would see Tina's behavior as responsible, her parents could only see her behavior as rebellion and proof that they had no control over her. Since honor killings are usually committed within families, they are considered to be a type of domestic violence. Domestic violence has a wider definition than honor killings, so honor killings are sometimes seen as a subcategory. One way honor killings are unique is that often the killings are well-planned in advance and involve the participation of multiple family members. In a study published in 2017, it was noted that the concept of honor usually reinforces patriarchal standards. This study also noted that specifically with honor killings, the media will focus on the religion or ethnicity of the perpetrator and the victim, and this can distract from the discussion of society's treatment of violence against women as a whole. In an article from the time of the trial in 1991, a local director of a children's center for abused children was quoted saying, Frequently one member of the family comes to represent all the problems in the family. An alliance is formed by the rest of the family members against this person, and the family member who is different in some way is usually the person who is scapegoated. Tina's sisters banded together as a united front for their parents and publicly sat on their parents' side during the trial. They also gave interviews to reporters covering the trial, expressing their support for their father's actions. One sister was quoted saying, My father acted to defend his honor, and if my father is sent to death, then he is proud of himself to die that way. Another sister gave a statement outside of a trial hearing saying that the system was to blame for her sister's death. She claimed that the family had asked the state to intervene in the months before her sister was killed, but their request to put Tina in a foster home went unfulfilled. She was quoted saying, Tina didn't die by my father's hand. The system killed her. She's gone now and she's not coming back. She doesn't need anyone to defend her. God will defend her if he wants to. As far as anyone could find, no reports were made to the state by the ISA family regarding Tina's behavior. The only instance of intervention that was on record was the time the police were called when Zane was beating Tina inside the Alliance Market. Tina's sisters also testified on their parents' behalf. They told the court that they appreciated their strict upbringing, and they also credited their parents with teaching them respect. The key piece of evidence that had a lasting impact on the jury was, of course, the audio of the murder. A seven-minute clip was played in court, and the jury heard every detail, and they were also given translations of Arabic and Portuguese. By the end of the tape, many jury members were visibly emotional. Those who have heard the segment of tape that was played have called it extremely disturbing. The trial itself lasted five days. Both defendants remained composed throughout the trial. Maria was often seen waving to her family when she was escorted into the courtroom. When the case went to the jury, they deliberated for just four hours before returning a verdict. On October 25, 1991, just days before the two-year anniversary of Tina's murder, her parents were both found guilty. Since this was a capital murder case, it was sent to a sentencing trial. That happened two months later, in December of 1991. Zane's lawyer argued that death was not the appropriate sentence. 
He said that this was a result of a domestic dispute where Tina had pushed her father too far. In a last-ditch attempt to keep Zane off death row, he argued that yes, Zane killed Tina, but he asked the jury to show him mercy by sentencing him to life in prison without parole. The jury and judge did not agree, and on the recommendation of the prosecution, the judge sentenced Zane Issa to death. Maria openly wept as the judge read out his decision. When it was Maria's turn to be sentenced, she made a statement to the judge. She said that she did not believe that she and her husband should be punished for what happened to Tina. Her attorney tried to argue that Maria was under Zane's abusive rule and that she tried to save Tina, but she was simply unable to. The judge also disagreed with Maria's case, and she received a death sentence as well. Maria and Zane were led out of the courtroom crying. Maria blew kisses to her daughters, who were also visibly upset with the results of the verdict. After the murder trial, the public knew that the ISA home had been bugged by the FBI to investigate possible terror connections between Zane and the ANO. On April 9, 1993, Zane was brought from his cell on death row to the federal courthouse in St. Louis to enter a plea for criminal charges relating to his alleged ANO membership. He was charged along with three other men that he was acquaintances with. All four men pled not guilty, and they faced a possibility of 20 years in prison. Charges included plotting terrorist acts and stockpiling guns and money to later send out of the country. The prosecution alleged that Zane was worried Tina knew too much about his ANO connections. They argued that this, plus their contentious relationship, were the reasons that Zane decided to kill her. The prosecution's proof of these allegations were in the same tapes that put Zane and Maria in prison for murder. However, these charges never went to trial. In August 1994, the other three men cut a plea deal with the prosecution and pled guilty. Zane did not change his plea, but the other men charged with him were significantly younger. When they agreed to their pleas, the prosecution dropped all terrorism charges against Zane. The prosecution cited his existing prison sentence and his age and failing health, saying that with these factors, going to trial on these new charges would not be worth the expense or the trouble. If you want to do further reading on the details of this indictment, I will link some court documents online. After the terrorism charges were dropped, the ISIS remained in prison on death row. On February 7, 1997, 65-year-old Zane Issa died at the Boone Hospital Center in Missouri. Zane, who had long suffered from complications with diabetes, had been at the hospital for over a week with around-the-clock guards. When his health took a turn for the worse, the prison hospital was unable to provide proper care for him and he was transferred. Zane had been on death row for five years, and despite his failing health, his lawyers continued to work on appeals on his behalf up until his death. Just a few months after Zane's death, Maria Issa's death sentence was overturned and she was resentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. The courts ruled that Maria's sentence was tied to Zane's actions. Zane was the one that murdered Tina and Maria was an accomplice, therefore the courts decided that life in prison was a more appropriate punishment for her role in the crime. According to her testimony, Maria said that she had little to no memory of the murder. 
She said that she did remember trying to help Tina get away from her father, but that was not apparent in the FBI recordings. From mid-1997 to April 2014, Maria continued to serve her life sentence in the Chillicothe Correctional Center for Women. Then, on April 30, 2014, 70-year-old Maria Issa was found dead in her cell. Cause of death was ruled to be natural causes. And that wraps up our show for this week. Thank you for listening. Before I go, if you or someone you know needs help or resources, please visit the National Domestic Violence Hotline. At the hotline, they provide more than a listening ear. They want to empower you with information, so you can check out their lists of resources for victims and survivors, as well as facts about domestic violence in the United States. You can visit their website at www.thehotline.org or call 1-800-799-7233. Also, there's a true crime podcast that specifically discusses domestic violence cases from an academic perspective called Targeted. And I wanted to give a shout out and a thank you to Mo from the Targeted podcast for her assistance in putting together this episode by providing me with some great resources. Stick around until the end of the episode to hear more from them. For more information on this episode, please visit the website misconductpodcast.com. You'll find links to further reading on this episode and more information about misconduct. If you want to get this episode early and ad-free, then check out my Patreon. If you subscribe at the $3 per month level or higher, you can listen to the episode before it is released on the regular feed. And thank you to all of our existing Patreon supporters. You are the ones that help make the show possible. If you have a second, head on over to my social media pages to let me know what you think about this week's episode and share your thoughts and opinions with other listeners. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at MisconductPod. If you would like to see a case covered, drop me a line and send it over to MisconductPodcast at gmail.com. I'm Mo Blackwell, the host of Targeted, True Crime, Domestic Violence. We investigate cases of family violence each season using academic research to help us interpret the events so that we can become better advocates. In season one, we follow the case of little Militia Gibson who was murdered by her stepfather as her mother stood by without intervening. We learn that Militia was not the only one being abused and took a hard look at laws and policies regarding abuse. In season two, we're telling the story of Tracy Thurman, who sued her city because police refused to protect her from her abusive husband. We'll also study the case of Joshua Osborne. His case was sensational, replete with a biker gang who rallied to protect Joshua and new legislation resulting from his case. Josh passed away a few years ago, and two of his siblings agreed to tell his story except they've revealed it wasn't just Josh's story. 
It's their story too, one that has been suppressed for over a decade. You can find Targeted Podcast, True Crime, Domestic Violence on iTunes, Spotify, and all the major podcatchers. Peace, my friends. Peace. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.